Psalm 90 begins this way, and it's a nice primer for our time in Ecclesiastes this morning. Psalm 90, verse 10, you don't need to turn there, it begins this way, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. This concept of time and the wisdom of one numbering their days is the wisdom of the preacher this morning. He's drawing you into that same idea of time. Time and its constraints. Time and its opportunities. Lord, give us wisdom that we might wisely number our days. This morning in Ecclesiastes, the preacher will call us to witness first how the entire earth is governed in time. He sets about to prove how the earth and its inhabitants are under a determined control. In other words, as we will look at this poem in a a minute, the wisdom that we're asking for this morning is that God would grant wisdom that we might wisely determine our days. Creation, as you know, You experience this time and time again, every moment of every day, and this will be the purpose of the poem of chapter 3. Creation has set limits, determined seasons, and creation, that is, all of the universe, is governed by unmovable or immovable laws. In science, we call this the laws of nature. As believers, we explain the laws of nature as how God upholds and governs the world through Christ. And we we acknowledge surely that he does govern, that he does control, that he does determine, and that he does set limits within which we are bound. Notice how the preacher this morning, and I use that as the term of he who has written the book, That is, Ecclesiastes. For some of you who are here this morning, I'm not referring to myself in the third person awkwardly right now. I'm referring to the title of the book as The Preacher. And notice how he starts to challenge you to wisely judge your days, to wisely gauge them by showing how the entire earth is bound by seasons and time. Notice in verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then we'll get to this in a moment, how he elaborates. But the key that you must grasp at the beginning in order to make sense of what he is drawing you into is the key term, everything. Everything. And I mean you included. Everything is in creation and occurs within a predictable cycle. 
said another way as you live your life, and you know this of what he will explain to you in just a moment, that nothing, and I mean nothing, is random. Notice around you that everything that you experience on a day-to-day level is operating on a fixed scale. And I'm not just talking, as we'll get to the poem in a moment, I'm not just talking about matter and energy. Many of you in science and its industries, various forms of engineering, surely we'd say things are operating on a mathematical fixed scale. Maybe those in computer sciences as well, seeing how math governs and how uh, the physics are determining laws and showing them forth to us as we study and apply our sciences. But beyond that, we're not simply talking about you know, a tree growing and shedding its leaves and falling and then going into hibernation and coming back out. There's a more scientific way to explain that, but you get the idea. We're not simply talking here about matter and energy. We are also speaking of the intangible and the emotional aspects of your life. The preacher is going to speak to you for a moment that your entire life, the swings and the sways of your life, both physically and emotionally, are operating on a scale or a seasonal scale within which you exist. He says it something along these lines. If you look back at verse 1, everything, there is a season and a time for how many matters under heaven? Every single matter under heaven. There is an appropriate time. Every single thing has a season or a cycle. So I'm asking you for a moment by way of introduction, think on this for Just a moment while you're here with me in this particular moment of time. If all creation is governed by time, it is governed by set seasons and controlled cycles, so are you. That is, you, individual, this morning, believer, unbeliever, you, as an individual, are a part of the whole. You live on planet Earth. You're here in the seasons. You also share in them. Every single thing has a season. There is a time in your life for every cycle. Again, we're not simply speaking of energy and matter. We're also speaking of the intangible and emotional aspects of our lives. They are guided by the Lord. We experience them in due time. Speaking on time then in this concept, one author notes to you this. If this is so, that God indeed does govern, that God does determine, that God does set limits, and it's experienced in time, then time management is an oxymoron. Time is beyond our control. And the clock keeps ticking regardless of how we lead our lives. In the sports world, an idiom goes something along these lines every time an old man tries to come out of retirement and become a superstar yet again, never leaving behind the days when he was somewhat good. It goes along these lines, Father time has no losses. It's beyond our control. We can't dominate it. We can't change it. 
We can't outrun it. We can't dodge it. Time the preacher places upon you. Consider your life lived in time and wisely number your days. To those who say, I will live forever, the preacher simply laughs. No, you will not. You see, time is a fixed convention within which each one of us lives our lives. And that convention is beyond our control. Perhaps you would say, you know, I would challenge that. This would be our culture that indeed would challenge that if money has any indicator For the global anti-aging product market has reached a $292 billion mark. Think about that for a moment. If we recognize and receive the testimony from Scripture and indeed our own analogy. I was getting my hair cut, I don't know, the other night, whatever night it was, Friday night. And we were doing it on the back patio uh, Adri trims it down or, or rips it down and then it grows back over time and then, you know, right? Everything has its own season. Um, I, and so we're there on the patio and I'm getting it cut and the kids are playing in the yard and Claire comes up and goes, Dad, your hair is actually gray. I was hiding it perhaps with longer locks. And then she asked me, do you think mom can stick the brown ones back in? (laughs) I don't think so. A good point of Ecclesiastes, Claire. Father time has no losses. Yet we would push back. If our dollars say anything, I would run out in my investment in the anti-aging product of my lifetime and I would get just a O-touch-O-gray. Or perhaps I would revitalize it and I'd wear it blonde and pretend. Reality is that no matter how many anti-aging adventures I, Adam, would go on, whether it be hypnosis, whether it be hormonal therapies, whether I submit the dark chocolate indulgence, pills, products, potions, or lotions, the reality is this from the preacher. Time belongs to God. For example, he says, if you think not, Let me just explain. Look at the text, verse 2. This is what I mean. It's beyond our control. Consider with me just for a moment. There is a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. As I said, if you went line by line, which I will not do for you this morning, but if you were just simply to look at those, you see he's dealing with you. You live on the earth, and the earth and all of creation is subject to time. And you live here. 
so also are you. And furthermore, it's not simply the body that is wasting away. It's some sort of energy and matter issue. It is also the internal workings. It is also your emotions. It is also your intangible aspects of who you are. You experience time on cycles and seasons, highs and lows. And my point in saying that to you is this. And that is in the poem, there are two particular points he's trying to establish with you in this poem by giving you a for example in eight verses it is number one he wants to establish through this poem that you the listener take this away he is seeking to establish the point through the poem that you live in response to time or you live reflexively to the clock I would say to you once again, think about your life on a day-to-day level. If we're all being honest with ourselves, even in our most arrogant points of time or time management, we must admit one with another that we never really get to do whatever we want whenever we want to do it. It doesn't exist. We are living responsively to the appropriateness of the moment. Every one of us experiences the sun rising and the sun going down. We cannot simply say, no, stand still. We cannot decide to make the day instead of, you know, 24 hours, 24 and a quarter hours. We, we, we humans, each of us, live responsive to the seasons, to the cycles Secondly, what he's trying to establish with you by experiencing them all in this moment is that being, therefore, bound to time, what I've established with you in the cycles, I've proved to you in every emotional situation or in every physical state, you are bound to time. And this being bound to time further demonstrates how your life is frustrated by futility. He's hammering this since, since uh, the very first poem that he opens up the book with. Re- remember, it, look in your text just for a moment. Flip back to chapter 1 and how he began this with this declaration at the very beginning of what he's still trying to systematically prove to any naysayer at this point that somehow they are not living fruitlessly and full of futility by denying their life has been created to honor God. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all your toil at what he toils at under the sun? That is, if you live your life away from God, what are you really getting? And he speaks about a generation goes and a generation comes. But hey, guess this, the earth remains forever. Yet is there any gain in it? No. He goes, the sun does what it does and does it again. The wind does what it will and it does it again. All the streams flow and then they flow again. Everything is full of futility and weariness. Here now he jumps into time to unite you to that weariness. You cannot get out of it. Let's say that you passed quest number one with wisdom. You passed quest number one with pleasure and hedonism. He's now got you in time. You, you, let's say you've provided some, for, some sense of a defense to the quest of wisdom. Somehow you said, no, there is meaning in wisdom, ultimate fulfillment in wisdom. You dodge that bullet, at least you think. You made it through hedonism. And now you're here in time. 
and he's got you. No matter what the mental leaps are, no matter what the apologetics are to get out of the situation, he's got you in time. You're bound by it. You live reflexively to the clock, and you know it. There's not one category I covered more broadly that you don't also share in, in time. Your life is frustrated by the futility that comes with time. He wants you to meditate on this thought very deeply, as you can imagine, because he's dropping the hammer on you in your futility. He's bringing it right home to where it hurts for $292 billion a year. Time. He wants you to meditate on that so aggressively and think about what your life means when you live in time. Does it mean anything? Because he hits you with the term time 28 times. Think about time. You're not getting out of it. You're not dodging it. You're experiencing it. And in your experience of it, it reveals to you that you're frustrated and you're sharing it. It goes deeper than gray hair. It is what it is. But it's an analogy. It speaks that I won't last forever in the flesh. He's causing us to reconcile the fact that ultimately here in life under the sun, nothing will last forever. Notice how he does so one more element to this poem that he's drilling at us with time to consider our place in time, but he is also showing us how these are predetermined cycles or conventions or seasons within which we live. Notice how he speaks of time in progress. Notice verse 2. I'll just simply point to that one. There is a time to be born. Okay, great. That's, that's a positive forward-looking outcome. It, 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 it's the progress. You've been born or birthed, and also with that comes the time to die. Do you see how he's speaking of time? There is progress, yet for every one of the progressive moments in the poem, there is its opposite. Spend time reading the poem and look it over. That's the whole idea. There's progress, but it also inevitably shares in its decline. Nothing escapes time. So, life in the earth is bound to cycles. And as you share in the earth and time, so also you share in its frustrating cycles. This production in the poem of life, yet with its detractions, leads the preacher to ask you a central question. This is what he asked just a moment ago in chapter 1. And that is what he asks you yet again this morning in verse 9. If you consider with me these thoughts on time, how everything has its own time, all of the experiences in time are bound and fixed. Let me ask you then, what gain has the worker from all his toil? Again, look over the business of verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men. What business is he talking about? Well, what he has described in the poem. Look at your life, folks. Look at your life. It, it's contained in verse 2 through verse 8. There's your life in time. You experience these positives and these declines. 
progress decline, progress decline, progress decline, progress decline. Let me ask you then, what gain are you getting in any of it? What was built has now been torn down. It was a time for embracing. Great, but look at it now. There's also a time when there's no embracing. There's, there's things that come and things that go. And you can't escape this time. Why are you then, he asks, putting so much emphasis on making gains when your own experience will tell you that all of your gains inevitably decline in time? And furthermore, this entire thing is out of your control. Therefore, he says to you, let me persuade each of you then as my audience that instead of being driven on by time, receive time as a gift from God. Instead of being driven on by time, receive time as a gift given by God. How can I do so? Look at verse 10. Again, verse 9, he hits you with, I've canceled out your life and I've made all of your time lived under the sun meaningless. So what gain is there? I proved every progress has its own decline. I have seen, verse 10, the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That's what I just explained to you in verses 2 through 8. I've seen it. I furthermore have seen this, verse 11, that he, God, in giving the children of man this busyness, he has made everything that is within the busyness beautiful in its time. That is, please recognize that God has given the time, but instead of being driven on by it, receive it. As a gift. Perhaps you ask this question because you notice in verse 10 he says, I've seen the business. Here's the business. I explained it. But God has made the business each moment beautiful in its own time. It's punctiliar moment. And so as a believer or as an unbeliever, I would challenge you as well. The question being this on your mind at this point as he tells you to receive time as a gift you ask the necessary question, how do I receive time today as a gift from God? So sometimes pastors are pressed to say, give me something tangible to walk away from Sunday with. Answer all my questions and application. How do I? You said to me, don't be driven by time. Great, I don't want to be. Receive time. Okay, good, how do I? And the answer to that is twofold. And he will explain them in just one moment. And it is simply this. Number one, receive time by faith. Again, pastor, that seems a bit vague, perhaps. Receive time by faith. In other words, I would suggest to you, recognize its sovereign source. That time has been sourced in God. And he has given it to me to be a steward of. His experiences he brings in my life. 
My life is not topsy-turvy. It's not out of control. I'm not losing my mind. God has planned my dial. God is guiding me with wisdom. He is my good shepherd, leading me, not sending me into the valley, but going with me into the valley to prepare for me green pastures. It's not to eliminate difficulty, eliminate valley. It's to go with me and feed me in the valley. My life is not out of control. Time is not dominating me. I'm receiving time in its providence as I recognize time's sovereign source. We aren't deists here. He didn't set up the earth and walk away where science took over. He has planned my dial. And he is sovereignly in love for me. Leading me and guiding me. Caring for me and preserving me. So he says, God has made everything beautiful. The second aspect of how do I receive time today, this day, what lie before me as a gift from God is to receive time according to its purposes. I'm receiving it by faith. That is, I'm acknowledging that it isn't just whimsical. It isn't just inevitable, but it is planned and dialed in on me by God for my good. And therefore, as I receive my day before him, I want to live it according to his purposes. Receive time according to its intended purposes. And most explicitly, what is that? What is your purpose? Why have you been created? Why are you living your 24-hour periods? And that is for all men everywhere to honor God with it. That's the stewardship in time before you. I receive it by faith, recognize its source, and I receive it according to its purpose. I seek by faith to honor God with it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, a verse that each of us have cited at some point, if we're even vaguely familiar with the Holy Scripture, and I don't want that to lose its effect, because if you join with this text from Ecclesiastes and Psalm 90, where he says, let us, O God, determine our days with wisdom. Let us see that at this momentary moment under the sun doesn't last forever. Let us have wisdom in numbering our days before you. So also the preacher, receive time to number it with wisdom. So also Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you're doing in time, right? Because he's dealing with something physical. You're eating and you're drinking. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you're eating or drinking, he's dealing with us in time. Or he says, whatever you're doing, in time, today, do all to the glory of God. That is your experience as the preacher has shown through the poem. Whether it be emotional and intangible. Whether it be experiential and outward. Whatever it is that you are receiving from the sovereign source who planned it and cares for you. Is sustaining you in it. You are to honor him by faith through it. Do everything emotionally, everything externally and physically. All for the glory of God. Of God. This concept 
of time and its purpose. Why are you here? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? This question is answered for you in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And you can, I'm sure, if you're unfamiliar, you can guess where this question is located in the catechism. Question number one. What is the chief end of man? In other words, why have you, individual, this morning, why have you been created? What's your purpose in time? What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism couldn't be put better. And that is man's chief end. The reason why you, individual, have been created and given stewardship in time is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This, says the preacher, is living what maybe we could coin living the beautiful life. It isn't the boats, it isn't the cars, it isn't the degrees, it isn't all of the earth's accoutrements and all the things we can possess, it isn't the wisdom, it isn't the hedonism, it isn't how we control time. This, the preacher says, is not how you live. Rather, by receiving time as sovereignly appointed, my stewardship of time to honor God is living the beautiful life. This is why he says in this view of time, we recognize in our busyness with which God has kept us busy. Verse 11, each one of these moments is beautiful in its time. Furthermore, along with the ability to rightly perceive your purpose in time, God has also given you the ability to sense, hasn't he? He has, you know it. He has given you the ability to sense that time is not all there is. This is what's given way to the greatest philosophers of the earth's history. This natural law, you look out and you grasp as it speaks forth the glory of God, Romans 1. It prompts in the mind and in the heart, there is something well beyond time. And then as we begin, we follow the heart as it guides into vain philosophy after vain philosophy after vain philosophy of the earth and its origins of ontology, epistemology, so on and so forth, and it keeps on going. Because this sense of what God has given us, that there is more than time, is also haunting, yet beautiful, as we recognize it. How is, what is the division between receiving it and being haunted by it? And that is, as we see verse 11, furthermore, he says also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning and the end. That is, in other words, 
You, you have a sense. It's an intuition. It is built in. It is wired in to mankind, in the heart, that there is more than what I see, and God has placed it there. Not that I might see what he is doing and glimpse into eternal things to know exhaustively and be God myself, but he has put it there that I might recognize there is more to life than what I experience in time. Let me ask you this morning, Are you prepared? I won't ask if you think on it. I already know you do. But in your thinking on it, are you prepared for life beyond time? If you would, for a moment, please go with me to John 3. It's forward-looking in your New Testament to John and the Gospels there, to John chapter 3. I'd like us to look at that text just for a brief moment. Dare I say, in time. God has put it in the heart of each one of us to grasp our life lived in time, its ups and its downs. He has put it in for us to perceive within our heart, that is within the center of our being, that there is more than what I see. There is more than what I experience. And I'm asking you, as we look at this text, are you prepared for life beyond time? put forward John's gospel in chapter 3, if I haven't asked you to turn to chapter 3, beginning in verse 31. As he speaks to us in time. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. You see that distinction between heaven and earth. What the preacher just said, God indicates this to us within the heart. Not that we would be above the earth, for he is above the earth, but that we would perceive there is something above the earth. So also the Lord. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. That that is, who embraces Jesus Christ. And I I, I can work on that from the context, but you have to go with me down this path. That as he speaks, that as those who embrace Jesus and see in him that his own testimony is this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son, that is, Jesus Christ, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you you see, that's the prompting 
I know that there is life. I know there is something beyond time. God has put it within each one of us to know this is not all there is. And here's the provision. Whoever believes in the Son, that is Jesus Christ, has eternal life. You're united, you're in union to life beyond time. Whoever does not, and this is why I ask you from this text as well as Ecclesiastes, are you prepared for life beyond? Because notice it's, it's provision and it's decline. Whoever does not obey the Son, that is Jesus Christ, shall not see life. It's decline. The wrath of God remains on him. This is the gospel proclamation And it is in the heart of each one of us to contemplate. And Christ makes an offer for any whose faith will receive of him and rest solely upon him. That you will possess him and all of his benefits. As we conclude our time in Ecclesiastes, if you would go back there just for a moment to conclude our time together. There is simply two conclusions he makes right here regarding this concept of time. And you'll notice them in your text, and I won't be long. I'll simply wind them down at this moment. But you'll notice in verse 12 and 14 is what he's trying to instruct each of us in also beyond that sense of eternity that time indicates to us. He's also saying, so out of what I'm trying to get at you, I've perceived two things. You notice verse 12, I perceive this. And then verse 14, I perceive this. So with verse 12, he says this. I perceived, this is how I lived my life in time, that there is nothing better than uh, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is, as he said earlier, this is God's gift to man. Don't be driven by time, but receive time. The first word on his final words of perception It is this, the life that God gives is limited and it is therefore to be enjoyed by the rule of faith. What I mean this for believers here in a moment, if I could just make a quick note to each one of us who profess Christ and indeed we say our faith has received him, we rest solely in him apart from any works on our own or merit that we bring rather as he is proclaimed in the gospel to us. That we have received. Then he says to you, live your life in an enjoyable manner. For believers, it is this, if I could make this brief side note, that whatever lawful thing, okay, so he's talking about your life lived in time now, as a believer who recognized this time given is a benefit, is a gift to me. How ought I behave to do all things for the glory of God in it? It is this, whatever lawful thing, that is what is not explicitly stated not to do in Scripture, whatever lawful thing we do, We must do with a clear conscience. This is doing so before the face of God, thankfully and joyfully in our hearts, to give God the glory for his good gifts.
This is the rule of faith, living a life to the glory of God, rightly receiving His good gifts. Again, whatever lawful thing we do, we must do with a clear conscience, with a thankful and joyful heart unto God for His good gifts. Number two, his second word of perception, that is number one, God gives life and it is limited, therefore I enjoy it according to the rule of faith. Any line items, your your issues there, eating and drinking and so forth, and I'm just calling each of us to live so by faith and a clear conscience. The second word in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it, and this is why. So that when you think of time and him not being mastered by it, you will fear before him. The second perception and conclusion to our time this morning is that God has revealed time and its constraints to our hair, to our lives, to our time, to our children. He has revealed time's constraints to us to make clear to each and every one of us this morning that we are not him. We are creaturely. We are subject to time. He is not. He is above and beyond and sovereignly in control of time. He is not bound by its constraints, neither is he governed or determined by it, but he sets its constraints and its boundaries, and he sovereignly guides it from one point to the other. And so my final question is this. What is time? From this text, time, time, and a time, and a time, and a time. What is time? And here's my final word to us this morning on conclusion to what time is in order that you, believer, individual, might wisely number your days. Time is God's continuum for the revealing of his beauty, excellence, power, and glory. Ultimately, he alone who governs and sets forth times and its seasons will ultimately conclude it as well with the return of Jesus Christ our Lord, bringing some to glory, bringing some to wrath. Whoever believes in the Son in time will experience in Him life beyond time. Let's pray. Father.